Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Jason, and uh, my wife and my kids, we've been uh, members of Mercy Hill for about five years, and we love this church, and so Pastor Brandon asked me this morning, or asked me some time back, to preach this morning on an interesting topic of how did we get our current Bible? How did we get the Bible that I'm holding in my hand, that you hopefully are holding in your hand, either in a print version or like my friend John Zila uh, on his uh, iPhone 13 Pro? 15. He's probably got a 15 Pro. He's so fancy. So... How, how do we get our Bible? If um, Some of you might be like me, and you're a smart aleck, and if somebody asked me that question, I would say something like, well, I got my Bible because I went down to the store and bought it, or I went on Amazon and I bought it, but um, those are just kind of silly answers. So how did we literally get the Bible that we have? Um, a couple of correct but maybe incomplete answers, uh, track with me for just a minute, um, is that we got it from God, right? The first place that we would say that our Bible came from is from God. So in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to his, uh, his, his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And in the original language of the New Testament when Paul wrote, that, that phrase, breathed out by God, is, uh, is one word in Greek, and it's theonoustos, which is a compound word, which means out of God's nostrils. God literally, like, it's going to be kind of gross, and I'm sorry, but I got a bunch of little kids, so I don't care. <sighs> like, when you tell a kid to, to blow his nose, that's what God did. He, he breathed the scriptures out of his nostrils, okay? God doesn't really literally have nostrils because he's not a, not a person. He's, he doesn't have a body. He's not corporeal. But he, the Bible says he breathed his words out of his nostrils so that we might have the scriptures. So we know the first place that our scriptures come from is from God, but they also come from men. What does the scripture say? Well, we, we have different books of the Bible. Your Bible has 66 books, And they were all written by a host of different people. So some of our our books in the Bible are single author books, like the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which was like a part one and a part two of the same story. And Luke says, beginning in verse one, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word." have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So you got a guy named Luke writing to a guy named Theophilus. And it's, a, and it's this Luke-Acts two-part story that we have in our scriptures. It was written by one guy to another guy. It wasn't in Luke's mind, it wasn't written for you. It was written for Theophilus. In God's mind, it was written for us. But for Luke, he's writing to tell Theophilus, 
I researched and I studied and I interviewed and I compiled this this large story so that you could be um, affirmed that the things that you have been learning for so many years are actually true. Theophilus is a believer and Luke wants to write this story to affirm the things that Luke has already believed. So we got some single author books. We also have some co-authored books. Like for instance, Paul says when he writes to the church in Colossae, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. It's, it's dual authored or co-authored. Or he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. So we have some books that are written by more than one person. And then we have some books in the Bible we don't have any idea who wrote. Like for instance, the book of Hebrews doesn't have an author named. In fact, most of the books of our Bible don't have a named author. They kind of fit in this category. So the writer of Hebrews says in the very beginning, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. I don't know who the us is. He doesn't say at the very end, P.S. love Jim Smith. We don't know, right? It's just us. So we have these books that are, that are named by the author, co-authored, and then we don't really know. All right, so the first answer, how do we get our Bibles? The insufficient answer is we got it because of God, and we got it because of men, and maybe women. Could be that some of our Bible books were written by women. We don't know. I hope so. Maybe a more complete answer could be found in 2 Peter. This isn't going to be up on the screen, but 2 Peter 1 20 through 21. This is what Peter says about how we come to understand our scriptures. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, he says, above all, you know this, absolutely no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a partnership. It's not just God, and it's not just men. It's both. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what I don't mean is that I don't mean that God turned Luke or Paul or Matthew or Isaiah or Moses into a robot where um, Moses is walking along one day and he's um, tending the flock of Israel and he's thinking to himself, I got all these things to do. And then out of the sudden, nowhere, the Holy Spirit takes him over and he becomes a robot and he just starts writing things down. That's not how it worked, right? So this is what a friend of mine um, who teaches at a, at a college in Ohio says about how to understand the relationship between the, the ultimate author of the scriptures, God, and the, and, the, and the physical writers of the scriptures, the men who wrote, he said, we would say, not that God turned these men and maybe women into robots, but we would say that God used the personalities, the intellects, and the abilities of each writer of scripture to communicate his word. Common people used in uncommon ways put real ink 
on real paper as God directed them. That means a couple of things. It means we should appreciate that every writer had their own vocabulary. Every writer had their own um, uh, interests. Every writer had their own purpose. And so when you read, um, and look, I took a number of years of Greek, and I'm horrible at reading Greek, but I was taught that when you read Luke's Greek, it's a lot more sophisticated than, say, John's Greek. Well, that makes sense because John was a fisherman, and he wasn't educated, and Luke was a doctor, and he had a good education. And so when we read the scriptures, we should appreciate that one writer wrote this way and another writer wrote this way. Or we could say uh, that, that David and the Psalms and all of the writers of the Psalms, the sons of Korah, had, had a, a passion for poetry. And I don't understand poetry for anything. And it's really hard for me. And so I have to work extra hard to read poetry. But we, we want to read poetry the way poetry is supposed to be read because that's what God intended was for certain parts of the Bible to be written as poetry and some to be written as teaching or didactic. And so we, we read and we learn. And then some is narrative where we read stories. And so we don't want to take a one-size-fits-all approach when we read the scriptures because each book and even sections within a book are written differently, so we need to appreciate that, all right? So how would I say it? This is how I would say it about kind of summarizing what we're going to talk about today. Through a confluence of providential history, God worked in the lives of his people both to produce and to protect his word. And it is available in common language for the purpose of knowing and worshiping him. I picked every one of those phrases intentionally because that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about so that you have a greater appreciation for what you hold in your hands. All right, so we have these writers. We also have editors. Did you know that there were people who edited the Bible that we have, right? A plug for editors. I happen to be an editor, so... Um, Nevertheless, but think about the ending of Deuteronomy. We believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but the way Deuteronomy ends is Moses' death. I don't really think if we sat down and thought about it, we don't think that Moses wrote about his death before he died, and he didn't come back to life after he died to write about his death. So somebody took Moses' writing and added a little bit extra ending to the end, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all right? We believe both that the writers and the editors were inspired to write what we have. Or think about there's a particular passage in, in the book of Numbers. Again, in the Pentateuch, written by Moses, Numbers 12.3 says this, now Moses was a very humble man, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, if Moses was as humble as the scriptures say, it's pretty hard to believe that he wrote that about himself, right? So it's okay to affirm that, that somebody wrote a book and then maybe somebody else came along and made some changes under the direction of the Holy Spirit so that what we have are, are God's words breathed out to us, okay? Um, all right, so... I want to talk about how we got our scriptures, but before I do that, I want to kind of compare how other religions 
teach that their scriptures came to them because it's entirely different, and I think it's good for our side. So first, let's talk about Mormonism, right? It's a uniquely American religion created by Joseph Smith in the 19th century. Mormonism teaches that Joseph Smith was about 17 years old one day walking around, I think in New York, and the angel Moroni came to him and gave him these metal plates, right, or metal pages that were written in Egyptian hieroglyphics. And it was, um, it was Joseph's job. He had been commissioned by the angel Moroni to translate these Egyptian hieroglyphics into English. And so Joseph Smith was the only person in the whole world who ever saw the angel Moroni, and he was the only person who ever saw these, these golden tablets. And so he spent four or five years translating these tablets from hieroglyphics into English, and then Moroni left, the tablets left, and all we got is one official copy of the Book of Mormon. There's nothing to compare it to. It's one of a kind according to um, Mormonism. And so their authority rests in believing that Joseph Smith's vision was true and that his translation was correct, um, despite the fact that he never really studied Egyptian hieroglyphics, but that's another point. All right, so uh, that's Mormonism. Islam teaches that the angel Michael gave visions to a man named Muhammad, and he dictated everything that Michael said. So this is a dictation theory of, 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 the, of, the, of, the, of Muslim scriptures. You got the angel Michael speaking. You got the prophet Muhammad writing word for word. Michael says a word, Muhammad writes the word. Michael says another word, Muhammad writes the other word. And they got this long uh, book of scriptures, okay? So it is, again, a direct one-to-one, only two people involved. Nobody else has the opportunity to kind of participate or judge or make sure that it's correct. But Christianity is different. We didn't have just one person getting a direct revelation. We had lots of people, 40, 45 different writers, 66 books, three different languages. Most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. There's a little bit of the Old Testament that's in Aramaic, and then the New Testament is in Greek. I wanted to put um, some pictures up on the slide here for you guys to see. I just think this is kind of cool. Um, this is a fragment from something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and I'd love to talk a lot about this, but uh, time doesn't permit. But essentially, uh, this kid was throwing some rocks in Egypt, and one hit a clay pot in a cave. And it turns out that there were all these fragments and scrolls that had been hidden for like 1,900 years. So this was found in like 1947, but it dates to like 200 BC. So when we talk about how was the Bible translated from Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek, we're talking about scholars finding little pieces of paper that are like this big. And some are bigger, some are entire pages or entire books or scrolls, but many of them are very, very small. And so this is the oldest fragment that we have uh, of the Old Testament. It dates to 200 BC, which is pretty cool because much of the Old Testament was written five or 600 BC. And we're gonna talk a little bit about dates in a minute. The next is um, an entire scroll of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. 
This is the oldest extant or, or existing entire scroll of the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis through um, Deuteronomy. It dates to around um, 1155 to 1225 AD. So it's not as old as the other things that we're going to talk about, but that's pretty impressive that we have an entire scroll, all five books um, dating that far back. So that's a little bit of the Old Testament. This is uh, a picture of the front and back of something called P52. Um, it is a, it's the oldest fragment that we have of the New Testament. So if you notice, uh, they're carbon copies because the left is the front and the, and the right is the back. So it's just both sides taken together. It is a picture of this fragment that shows partial words from the verses of John 18, 31 through 33 on the left and John 18, 37 through 38 on the right. It dates to about 130 AD, which is really awesome because most scholars date John's gospel to be around 60 to 80 AD. So you're talking about 50 years. 50 years have passed between the time uh, uh, John wrote his gospel and when this fragment exists. That's not a very long distance between the two as well. And then this is my favorite one right here. This is Codex Vaticanus. It's a, it's, it's a picture of one page of Codex Vaticanus. And you can't zoom in very well. It's not a good picture, but you could go online and you can read it. It's from Genesis to Revelation, all in Greek. Um, it's the oldest copy of the entire scriptures. Um, footnote, it's missing like 30 pages because uh, it's really old and something happened and some of them fell out. But for the most part, it's the whole Bible and it's the earliest copy we have around 325. And I picked this particular page um, out of all of the pages because this is um, the column. So this is how it was written in three columns on one page and it was a book just like your book. So I picked this page because the left-hand column is the last verses of Romans chapter three. And then if you see that dot kind of like at the middle column at the top, that's the beginning of chapter four. But the left-hand column is Romans three. And it's my favorite passage in all of the Bible, Romans three, 21 through 26. And it's a part of the tattoo that I have here on my arm. So I picked this particular page to talk about God's righteousness, not being uh, known through the law of Moses, but being made manifest or made known through Jesus Christ. And the law and the prophets of the Old Testament testify about the righteousness of Jesus, but Jesus comes in the flesh. So I picked this particular page, but this is, um, this is 325 to 350. It's the oldest copy of the entire Bible that we have. And I love it. And it sits inside the Vatican and nobody is allowed to touch it uh, because um, it's the only copy we have. All right, so let me talk for just a couple of minutes about like, how, how did we get the Bible from one person to the next person to the next person? Because um, you might know that, uh, you might think that uh, Johannes Gutenberg um, uh, invented the, the movable type printing press in Germany in 1425, but that's not true. It was actually invented by the Chinese in like uh, 1050. But Chinese characters are really hard and difficult, and so it existed in China, but it wasn't overly helpful until it made its way westward, and a man named Gutenberg created uh, in the West a printing press. And so you could, uh, you could make out of metal letters and arrange them and put it down on a piece of paper, and boom, you had an entire page 
copied just like that. But before 1425, if you wanted a book written, you had to pay somebody to handwrite the whole book. Now, I don't know how long it would take to handwrite an entire Bible, but it would take a long time and it would be very expensive. And so Bibles didn't exist back in the old days the way that they exist now because it was so expensive and because it was time-consuming. They were copied by hand. Every book, all 66 books, every page, every letter, hand-copied. And then they would make copies of those copies. And then they would make copies of the copies of the copies. And so if you were fortunate to be in a church that had maybe Paul's letters, you didn't have Paul's letter to the Philippians. You had a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And then it depends on what part of the time frame of world history you were in. You had copies of copies of copies of copies. Does that make sense? All right. One of the challenging aspects of hand copying is making some mistakes, right? Because people are bad spellers. I'm a horrible speller. And so if you asked me to copy the book of Romans, uh, I, would, I would look at it with, one, with, my, with my eyes and then I would write it out. And then I would keep going and I keep going. And inevitably I would misspell some words. And then I would give that copy to, um, to Tyler. And I would say, Tyler, I need you to take this over to, um, uh, I don't know, South America and you make a copy for them, except, um, you know, wherever. I don't know. And then Tyler would take my copy, and then he would copy it. And then he would give it to somebody and say for them to copy it. And, and my misspelling of one word would be in all of those copies. And that's, that's not bad. I mean, if I was spelling the word Frank, and I spelled it, I don't know, Frank. I don't know. And I put an extra letter. You could figure out that that's, that's an easy mistake. So as we have copies of copies of copies, there's lots of variants or mistakes, and they're easy to spot because they're misspellings. Or have you ever hand copied something and accidentally got two words switched where you meant to put this word here and this word here, but you accidentally got them switched? We have those kind of variants in our, in our old, old texts, okay? There's lots of other options too, like when you're reading um, you accidentally turn away for a second and then you come back and you can't find out where you are and you, you accidentally start reading three lines down. Some of our copies of copies of copies, the, the, the scribe or the, the copier got confused and missed a couple of lines. And when you have 30 different copies of the same book and 28 of them say one thing and then three are missing some lines, you can figure out, hey, what a copier did here was accidentally skip a couple of lines and we can fix that. We'll go back and we'll make a different copy and we'll put those lines back in and we won't use the bad copies that accidentally are missing some lines. You follow me? So we have all of these copies and 99% they look the same, but there are some differences. And so there's an entire science of biblical scholarship called textual criticism. And so these men and women look through all of the different texts and copies to find all the variants and say, we know the reason this is here is because 84 copies back, somebody misspelled a word or 49 copies back, they put two words. We can fix those things. So we don't have, like there's no such thing as an official Christian 
first edition Bible. It doesn't exist. It exists in Islam because Muhammad made one directly from Michael. And, and the Mormons have one because it came directly from Moroni to Joseph Smith. But that's not how God operated. When each person received revelation from the Lord, they wrote their scriptures down, passed it on through copies and copies and copies so that it could be spread across the world. And what we have now are copies of copies of copies with the caveat that science has helped us know what the original authors were saying. All right, I try to explain textual criticism this way. It's kind of like CSI. You guys watch CSI or whatever CSI the movie or CSI the cartoon? It is their job to walk into a crime scene and say, ask the question, what happened? There's, there's nobody there that's going to tell the story, but there is evidence everywhere that you can look at the, the direction of the gunshot and you can see the blood splatter. And I don't watch these shows. I don't know, but I'm just speculating here. And in a similar way, we have, we have scholars and, and social scientists, biblical scholars, who will walk into, quote, a text and ask, what was this supposed to be? And when we spread all the copies out, we come to decide this is what, this is what it was when Paul wrote or when Isaiah wrote. All right, that took a long time there. Brandon's giving me some scary eyes. All right, so... Um, uh, flip on over to the next slide, and I just want to quickly show you, this is really helpful for you to understand how um, ancient manuscripts were uh, produced and transmitted relative to the, to the Bible. So um, I just want to look at the first one, and then, and then you guys can look at others later. But, so the very first is Homer's Iliad. Maybe you've read it. It's a classic work of ancient literature. Um, we suspect that Homer wrote it about 900 BC, and the earliest copy we have that's still in existence is 400 BC. So there's a 500-year gap between when Homer wrote and the, and the earliest copy that we have, and they have about 643 manuscripts. They're not all from 400 BC. That's just the earliest. We have copies uh, and, and we just know that the earliest one is 400 BC, or um, we'll do Herodotus's history. It was written around, let's just say 450 BC. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. That's a 1,300-year time span from between when he composed it and our earliest extant or available copy, and we only have eight manuscripts in all the world. But when people read Herodotus's history, they don't, they don't sit back and say, I wonder if this is true. There's this large gap. How do we know? We don't have his original. How do we know that, that what we have is actually true? We, we, we know because we understand how texts were transmitted. So how is that different than the Bible? The answer is the texts that we have get us much closer to the original authors than any of these ancient books. All right, I showed you a picture of P52. It's like 50 to 60 years between when John wrote his gospel and when we have this fragment. We've got um, Codex Vaticanus, which was written about 325. At most, that's like 280 years difference between when the New Testament authors were writing and when we have this copy. So 
Most of our ancient works of great literature have large gaps between composition and earliest date. The Bible is a much smaller gap, and we can rejoice in that. All right, so how was the, how was the Bible actually made? All right, um, so Paul would write letters and send them out to churches, and, and individual gospel writers would write a book, and it would be for his community. So, for instance, um, John wrote mostly for Ephesus, all right? And, and Mark wrote mostly for Rome. And so um, it took a while for Mark's gospel in Rome to, to travel all the way around through Palestine and then down to Alexandria, all right? And so it wasn't like Mark wrote in 55 AD and in 56 AD, his gospel is down here. It, it took a while, okay? And so you've got these texts moving all around the Mediterranean because that's where Christianity mostly is in the first and second century. And so this man named Marcion in 150, he says, we need to decide which books are in and which books are out. But um, he hated uh, Jews. And so he wrote a list of books that were anti-Jewish. And so it was, it was most of Luke with some parts about Jews that were good. He cut those out. And then all of Paul's letters, and that was it. So you didn't get Peter because Peter was Jewish. You didn't get uh, John because John was Jewish and said some good things about the Jews. And so you got this list. And then the church said, no, that's not right. You cut out way too much. And so they began to decide what is useful and helpful and appropriate to be read to the people when we gather. We gather every Sunday where our pastor reads from these scriptures. And these scriptures were determined by the church as what is useful. I have a, a good library at home, lots of books, commentaries. I like U.S. history, presidential um, uh, biographies. My favorite book is a book called To the Golden Shore. It's a biography of a man named Adoniram Judson. We named our firstborn after Adoniram Judson. It is, uh, I cry every time I read that book. I love that book. It's a wonderful story of a man who left America, gave up everything, took his family, went and served and preached the gospel um, in East Asia and saw no fruit for years and was persecuted and all sorts of things. I love that book. It is not worthy to be read when we gather together. It's not. And so the church asked, what books are worthy to be read? So that's how we got our canon. They came together and decided these books, Stephen, I don't know where we are in the thing, but just figure it out or whatever. So <laughs> these were the criterion, okay? Number one, a book had to follow what the church called the rule of faith. Basically, did, did this book teach the gospel, okay? Does 1 Peter teach the gospel, yes or no? The answer is yes, so it's in the canon. Do, uh, does Mark teach the gospel, the good news of Jesus? The answer is yes, it's in the canon. There are a bunch of other books that were written in the first and the second centuries that talked about Jesus and talked about the church and were helpful. Like there's a book called the Didache and it is uh, instructions on how to live the Christian life. It's very helpful. But the church said, no, that doesn't, doesn't teach the gospel. We're not putting it in. Or there's a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. It's a good book. You can read it. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not worthy to be read and exposited among the people. So does it meet the rule of faith? Yes. 
Secondly, does it have a connection to an apostle? Did an apostle write it or somebody closely associated with an apostle? So that's how Mark, Mark's gospel gets in. Mark wasn't an apostle, but he gets in because he, he's essentially writing Peter's sermons. Does that make sense? All right. And then the last is Catholicity. Now, don't get mad at me. We're Baptists. But what this means is, was it universally accepted? Did people everywhere in Rome and in Ephesus and Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria and in Spain, did all of, of the Christian communities, did they all accept these writings? Because some in Alexandria would read some extra books that people in Jerusalem wouldn't. And so they had to decide, do we, do we put this book in even though Alexandria doesn't like it? And so they came to a consensus about what does everybody agree on? It's kind of like when we ask all nine of our kids, where do you want to go eat? And they start arguing and then mom and dad just say, no, nope, we're just going to pick because it will be here all night. Okay. So the last thing I want to talk about, because I'm running out of time. Oh, I'm already over time. There were um, lots of people who died so that you could have your scriptures. I, I had a couple of stories, but I'm just going to share one. Um, the last emperor of, of, of the Roman Empire before uh, Constantine came to power, his name was Diocletian. And for a number of reasons, he began persecuting Christians um, in the empire because he wanted uh, Rome to get back to its... Um, its old ways and, and, and flourish. And they thought one of the reasons that it was uh, declining was because of Christianity. And so he began persecuting Christians. And specifically, he was looking for people who owned scriptures, okay? He didn't care if you were illiterate. That didn't bother him. He wanted to find the people who had the holy books, the sacred books. And so he would send people out to search for pastors and for, for elders and for deacons who might have had three of Paul's letters or uh, all of Paul's letters or one gospel. And so they would go in and they would, they would take these men out and they would start to beat them until they would uh, confess, yes, I have a copy of Luke's gospel, hid it underneath my pillow. You can go get it there, okay? Or um, I put it in my safety deposit box at First National Bank, where, wherever it was. And so it, it began to create categories because some people would give in to the pressure and would, um, would give up the scriptures. And other people wouldn't. They thought that the scriptures were so worth it, so holy, and so necessary for the gathering that they would give up their own life before they would give up the holy scriptures. So here's one story that I found that I wanted to share with you. It, it's, um, this comes from Fox's Book of Martyrs. It says, Timothy was a deacon of a particular town, and he had a wife named Mara. And they had not been united together by the bands of wedlock more than three weeks when they were separated from each other by the persecution of Diocletian. And Timothy, after he had been apprehended, um, it was, because he was a Christian, he was carried out before um, the governor of this region who knew that Timothy was keeping some holy scriptures. And he commanded Timothy to deliver them, the scriptures, to be burned. And Timothy responded, had I children, I would sooner deliver them to be sacrificed than to part ways with the word of God. And the governor was very angry at this reply, and he ordered Timothy's eyes to be poked out with red hot irons and said to him, 
these holy books or these sacred books shall at least be useless to you, for you shall never see to read them. Timothy's patience under this ordeal of persecution was so great that the governor got even more angry and he ordered that people do whatever they wanted to Timothy in order to get him to give up the scriptures. And so they hung him upside down by his feet and then they tied a weight around his neck so he would be stretched. And then they put a gag in his mouth so he couldn't talk. And his wife of three weeks... Mara saw him being persecuted and tenderly begged him for her sake to recant and give up the scriptures. But when they took the gag out of his mouth, instead of consenting to his wife's entreaty to give up the scriptures, he greatly blamed her mistaken love and he declared his resolution of dying for the faith. And the consequence was that Mara resolved to imitate his courage and fidelity and either to accompany or to follow him to glory. So the governor, after trying in vain to change her mind, ordered her to be tortured, and then she was executed with great severity. And then both Timothy and Mara were crucified near each other in 304 A.D., because he would not give up his copy of the scriptures. There are lots of stories about people being persecuted because it was illegal to have the Bible in the common language. In, in uh, 1400 in England, it was made illegal. And a man named um, William Tyndale uh, broke that law and smuggled in English Bibles. And so what I want to leave you with today is a couple of points of application. First of all, what we've talked about today matters because we can have confidence that what we hold in our hands physically, through paper, or digitally on a phone is God's Word. And unlike protectionistic stories that guard against the chance of error, like Islam and Mormonism, our God has never, ever shied away from involvement with humans including the delivery of his word. It was messy for Jesus to become incarnate, to live, to suffer and die. And it was messy for God to involve 40 some odd different people and copyists and editors and all those things for his word to remain. But we can have confidence that what we hold is God's word. Second, we can remember that what we hold is costly. Countless people lost their lives over the transmission of the Bible both because it violated the laws of the state and it violated the laws of the church. The church for years and years did not want people to read the Bible in a common language so that they could hold it over their heads and be an authority over them. And then third, we can be grateful that what we hold is in our language. In the annals of church history, we are in the minority. Scripture has provided the church with the content of our faith for close to 2,000 years. And I would encourage you, I would, I would implore you, don't be complacent. Because you probably have eight to ten different versions of the, of the Bible in your house. I know I do. I got more than that. And you can go online right now on Amazon, and you can order a study Bible, a goatskin Bible, 
a teen Bible, a woman's Bible, a men's Bible, a men's hunting Bible, a devotional Bible, a note-taking Bible, a reader Bible. You name it, you can order it. And what I find in my own life and the lives of others is that we will buy Bibles, and then we will put them on our shelves, and then we won't read them because we have become complacent, or we have a plethora of choices of translation. You can get the KJV, the New King James Bible, the NIV, the RSV, the NASB, the CSB, the ESV, the NET, the NLT, the message. You got it all. And there's a phrase that that comes to mind over and over. Don't let familiarity breed contempt. We are so familiar with having the Bible all around us that We don't really understand or care how costly it's been for us to have it in our language. So as as we end, and as Mitchell comes back up, or whatever happens next, I don't know, is that I want you to, to walk away appreciating that God's word is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. And Jesus told some folks, some Pharisees, you, you hypocrites, you searched the scriptures and you never found me. And I want you to know that Jesus is inside of these scriptures and he can be found if you will take the time to read on a daily basis. There's no condemnation about how long or how many books, but pick up and read and see that the Lord doesn't do a good work in your heart because you have the scriptures, God's word in your language. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.